Welcome to another episode of Tuning In with KR Asia. I'm your host, Sarah Mandagi. This episode, we are delighted to have Joshua Augusta with us. He currently serves as the Director of Venture Funds at Mandiri Capital Indonesia, a CVC from one of the largest banks in the country. Today, we'll talk about financial technology transformation in Indonesia, but not only that, we'll also be discussing about leadership experiences and tips for startup founders to kick out this year. Joshua Augusta, thank you for tuning in with KR Asia today. Happy to have thank you here. Thank you for having me. Yep. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yep, pleasure. So yeah, let's talk about financial technology, financial industry, especially from VC perspective. Do you mind if I just jump into the first question? Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Okay. Do you mind to share about your professional journey and how did you end up in the venture capital industry? So I think it started back in 2012, I guess. Mm. So it was almost nine years ago. So uh, back then, just to be honest with you, I don't even know what venture capital is. Yeah. I don't even know what a startup is. I just know that those are some great companies out there. Uh, the mm-hmm. Twitter of the world, the Facebook of the world, you know, the Airbnbs of the world. They are changing the world. The founders are cool because they are wearing t-shirt and jeans every day to the office. It's kind of interesting. Right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> back then I was working in one of the largest FMCG company in Indonesia, typical, basically. And then a guy named Nico Wijaya, yeah. basically mm-hmm. right now he's the CEO of BRI Ventures, introduced yes. me to this world of venturing. So actually, you know, it wasn't that I chose uh, to be a venture capitalist back then. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, I kind of decided that this guy is kind of interesting. I hate my job back in the FMCG company. I'll just, you know, try to see what he's doing by working for him at the moment, okay. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I started, actually. So it was a kind of a serendipity-ish. Mm. Because, yeah, again, I don't make any choices of entering the venture industry. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. I just try to figure out what it is as the company grew back yeah. then. Mm-hmm. And then along the way, you are still here in the venture capital industry. Yeah, well, it's, a, again, it's all startup, PCs, whatever. It's all about iterating. It's all about validating yourself. I think when we started, you know, in my first venture capital company, it was called Systech Group. It was backed by Venus Family, actually. Right now, the company is not existent anymore. Okay. <laughs> If you ask me where it is, right? <laughs> But it was one of the first venture capital companies in Indonesia. At that time, you are in the face of that. You don't really know what you don't know, you know? Yeah. Not really a lot of information out there. There's no unicorns of the world. We have never made any venture investments before. So basically all people in the companies are newbies, basically, in this industry. Networks limited. So you only know what you know eventually, right? And we made some bad decisions, bad investments back then. And we lost around five million US dollars, I guess, in oh. two years. But, you know, from that learning, from losing $5 million yeah. in two years, I think you know what not to do, right? I, I think that's a learning. Rather than not learning anything, you don't know what you don't know. Right now, you are moving into the next phase that you know what you don't know. You know what's wrong, mm. right? You know what you shouldn't do. And then MBI Ventures come in. Uh, no, actually, it wasn't there uh, back then. It was 2014, uh, Telcom came in. He asked Nico, basically, what if you guys managed the $100 million for for us, for Telkom back then, because Telkom is doing their CPC. Yeah. And actually, we wouldn't believe that Telkom is actually serious in this until eventually we didn't like pitch that venture capital is something that is, you know, beneficial or maybe profitable. We told Telkom everything that we experienced back in Sistec, which is nothing, which is, you know, we lost $5 million 
Yeah. We lost. Uh, can I curse in this in the show? No. No need. <laughs> no need. Okay. No need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we lost five million US dollars, right? I mean, mm. it's not a profit-making business, at least not immediately, right? And it's a very, very, you know, basically it was nothing back there. I haven't really seen any future in there, and you know, we told every, uh, not necessarily a good thing. But we taught them all the risks, all the bad things that happened to our previous venture to Telcom back then, right? Eventually, somehow, some way, the board of directors of Telcom back then liked our story by saying that, "Hey, you guys are the only ones that are not saying good things about this. Maybe you are onto something." Yeah, that's what they said. So, yeah, 2014, 2015, the birth of MDI, we managed the initial 100 million dollars. We managed the Indigo Incubator, mm-hmm. also one of the largest accelerator program yeah. until today, the largest mm-hmm. and the oldest. Until then, yeah, we made several investments globally. I think when I left in uh, 2019, there are almost 40 companies in 11 countries. Yeah. We had seven exits in four years. Oh. The rest was history. I see. I yep. see. <laughs> That's where where it all started. Where it all started. Now uh, yeah. you already uh, Mandiri Capital Indonesia, right? Yep. As far as I know, then the thesis of Mandiri Capital is focusing on fintech industry, correct? Yes, that's right. So, do you mind to share? Some overview of current Indonesia fintech industry, its landscape, and where are we um, now? Where is Indonesia, let's say, in Asia region? I think the trend right now. I think I stole this from someone else, but yeah, it's called embedded finance right now. That's the trend. So I think Mandiri Capital started. I wasn't there when it was started, but you know, started by a, like a pure fintech or pure financial services investor. So I think if you break down at least our portfolio companies until today, it's either on payments, yeah, lending, or SME, SME empowerment along those lines, right? So pure fintech, basically. Okay. Eventually, what I believe or what we believe is going to be next for financial services in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia especially, is that financial services and financial technology is going to be everywhere, not just in fintech companies. So we started by uh, you know the fintech companies are technically unbundling the bank, the incumbents, you know the lendings, the you know the remittances, the money sending, what have yeah. you. Everything are being unbundled by the smaller, more agile fintech players. They acquire user profile, uh, users, potential customers that haven't been really touched by bank before, which is plenty in Southeast Asia. And right now, not just these fintech players, but actually other. Startups in different industries are doing financial services as well. It started from the trend globally, actually. So if you think about it, right now Apple is also a fintech company. If you think about it, mm. they issue credit cards, right? They yeah. work together with Mastercard. They work together with Goldman Sachs. They issue the Apple cards for them to facilitate the payments for their products, essentially the hardware. Right, the phones, uh, the tablets, the, the the computers, whatever you. Essentially, right now and right now, you see their sort of financial uh, financial support uh, services is one of the main contributors for the revenue, at least the second or third after the phone. Yeah. And a big chunk of the services revenue stream is coming from the credit card transactions, the fintech, basically, right. Uh-huh. Uh, Shopify doing the same thing. So right now, Shopify, you know, they're providing the website for e-commerce. Essentially, they were a software as service player, but right now, more than half of their revenue are actually coming from uh, they from them lending money or not necessarily lending, but distributing lending to their merchants who use Shopify platform. So essentially, they are also a fintech company. 
that kind of trends we can see right now is happening in all of our unicorns, right? On the bigger companies, right? Gojek, right? Hailing, GoPay, right? Yeah. You cannot separate GoPay from Gojek. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you cannot separate OVO from Grab, basically, right now. OVO from uh, Tokopedia today. Yeah. Right. So essentially, all these big companies or Shopee Pay right now, yeah. they are also coming in into this space as well. And very, very strongly, they're coming into this space with their wealth of, uh, you know, money, a lot of money to burn, right? So they come, they're very serious into this space as well. So you cannot separate this unicorn from their fintech art, basically. I see. Essentially. And right now, it is embedded to their non-fintech core. So mm-hmm. technically, even though they are not started as a fintech company, right now they are, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. we are seeing that trend in the other high growth companies as well. In multiple sectors, actually. So, for example, companies like Ala Doctor, for example. Yeah. Uh, they're selling insurances, even though they started as a telemedicine. What else? Logistics companies, Cargo. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Cargo of the world, basically the Ritasa of the world, basically high-growth logistics company. Right now, they are providing supply chain financing to yeah. their logistic partners. Toka, right now, providing uh, lending to their merchants. So that's, I think, is going to be the trend for financial services, at least at the high level in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And fintech investors cannot see just pure fintech plays, but also other verticals that might be become the sort of the front and facing of the financial services. So that's going to be interesting. I see. Interesting. So, yeah, I heard many people talking about financial inclusion, talking about, you know, serving the underbanked. I'd like to ask your opinion. How far is Indonesia from financial inclusion? And are there any challenges that you think might be slowing down the progress, for example, like regulations or access to digital infrastructure, etc.? We define financial inclusion by uh, their access to financial services. Okay. Basically to the banks, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think at the current point, even though it is growing very, very rapidly, uh, thanks to the distribution of mobile wallet, uh, it's still very much highly untapped, right? Mm. If we define, here's the thing. I mean, if we define financial inclusion by their access to at least one financial product, I think it's quite simple. In my opinion, because the proliferation of the wallets, the expansion of these big players into the remote areas, a lot of players right now, I think I can get four or five big players right now in Indo. I think we can leave the financial inclusion to them, basically, right? They're growing rapidly. Everyone will eventually use the wallet. Wallet. But, you know, at least the wallet, right? Yeah, you know, a lot of use cases meet Rabukalapak. You can have discount by using their payment platform to buy products, right? Mm -hmm. So that's financial inclusion, if you think about it, right? I see. Aja, they are focusing on non-tier one cities yeah. in Indonesia. So that's another use case. Or maybe you're trying to pay using your pulsa. That's another use case, right? Yeah. So I think it's quite simple back then if you want to define it that way. But what I think what we want to do for Indonesia for financial inclusion is not just necessarily any kind of product, yeah. but we want this financial inclusion can lead to the increase of well-being, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So it depends on what kind of metrics that you are looking at. But yeah. in my opinion, what any startups or in that are working in financial inclusion should do is focusing on their wealth and their well-being instead of just them using their product or at least one financial product. And mm-hmm. if we're talking about well-being, that's a lot of homework. <laughs> on that regard, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. A lot. That's, yeah, that's, I think, my two cents on that. 
I see. Well, I think it's five cents already. <laughs> okay, well, you mentioned that it's not necessarily products, but maybe if you can give any thought, are there any interesting products or service that fintech startups can further develop in order to step up the financial industry game? I think some of them are doing exceptionally interesting things, in my opinion. Without mentioning names, yeah. some of the players right now are doing open banking. Okay. Uh, which is something new for me, actually. So right now, I'm currently studying that particular vertical in fintech. Some of the players are also sort of becoming the hub or maybe the cloud for banking, which in a more sophisticated term, it's called a banking as a service. So basically, banking in a nutshell, they have two main revenue streams. Right? The fees that you get from your lending and the interest that you get. So basically, interest income and non-interest income. Mm. Non-interest income are usually called the fee-based income. Usually come from, for example, the fee from your floating money. That is a fee-based income. The fee that you get from, for example, if you rent the safe, the safe deposit box, yeah. that's also a fee-based income. Another yeah. one is things like uh, if you if you use the payroll software for yeah. bank, if you're a company using the payroll software for bank, that's also a fee-based income. So right now, some of these more interesting and more sophisticated financial services technology are doing the core banking products that I mentioned before the fee-based okay. income, but they are doing it on the cloud and they are aggregating all the banks. Yeah. So rather than, you know, for example, if you are a company that have, for example, multiple employees, a lot of employees with multiple bank accounts, I yeah. think it would be more beneficial to you to use this particular services that are aggregating all banks rather than attached to one bank by logic okay. because it will be more efficient for you in the long run. So I think it changes the map of the competition because of the emergence of these players. And more and more of these players are coming. The bank veterans are building this, former bank veterans, the, the former startup founders, the former fintech startup founders, or maybe at least the higher management of uh, unicorn fintech startups in the region are building this in Indonesia. So this is an interesting space to see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Now let's talk about leadership. You've sure. been in leading position for quite some years already. Can you share with us like some lessons or probably the most difficult decision-making process during your time leading a company? It could be from the current one or even the previous one. It's not that the decision-making process is difficult, but the repercussion of the decision is sometimes is harder to bear rather than the mm. decision-making process itself. You know, decision-making process usually is all about, in my experience at the very least, it's the way you manage stakeholders, it's the way you manage the time, it's usually the way you manage the projects and also the, what we call, lead time, basically. Mm. Yeah. You know, in maybe SOE-related companies like Mandiri Capital or maybe MBI, there are still a bureaucracy. You know, as independent yeah. as we are, there's still bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Are, you need to understand that. And to make the decision, I think there's no like difficult decision-making process, but there's, a, a, you know, challenges, especially in the early days of mm. convincing the other people who are okay. making the decision for us to basically to believe in what we do. But I think one of the lessons is that those kind of experiences that can only be sort of deterred by time. You cannot expect these people who has been quote-unquote successful in doing what they do for the last 20 years to believe this young kid from nowhere, right? Yeah. In just one year. So yeah. what we need as the young kid is patience. Seems easy, but as a young kid, sometimes mm. you don't have the patience. So <laughs> I think that's more of the what the difficulties that we face. 
how can we manage the stakeholders? I mean, how can we manage these incumbent players, Telkom, Mandiri, whatever, that have been successfully doing their businesses for the last 20 years into this new thing, ventured into something unknown? I mean, back then we were unknown, right? We don't really think that we know. Eventually, we, we won't say that we know 100% what we're going to do, but we need to you know, at least convince them that we know what to do. So that's the biggest challenge. And managing these, managing the stakeholders' expectations. Sometimes, you know, they put on the money for you. They expect some returns. They have certain expectations, basically. And how do you manage that? Can they be patient enough towards the return that you're going to uh, provide? You know that you are not going to be able to provide short-term return, but how are you going to make them happy in the short run? So those processes are the most difficult phases actually, in running this CBC, in my opinion. I see. So it's not necessarily in the decision-making process, but more into the uh, stakeholder management. That's part of it. It's okay. Thank you. Yeah. And I have just one curious question. Like, I believe that every people, we will not ever stop learning, right? So what do you want to learn? Like, or it doesn't have to be about work. It could be like a soft skill or anything that you think you want to. I want to have that kind of capacity or that kind of ability. I want to learn how to do it. Do you still have that kind of passion to learn something new, even in this time of your career? Yeah, of course. I mean, related to work, uh, having an in-depth knowledge about the operations of a company, mm. how actually grow uh, the company from the operational perspective. I think I think that's something that I haven't really experienced before. So that's something that I deeply want to learn. Just because uh, by understanding that, I believe I will have a more and sharper sort of uh, considerations where I'm making investment decisions. I have no operating experience before. I think only just for maybe one year plus, less than two years, basically operating experiences. I think in theory, at the very least, it can help you in making sharper investment decisions. In theory, we never know. A lot of the venture capitalists out there are not operators, but they are making good investment decisions. But that's something that I deeply want to learn, how to basically grow a company, not just coming from outside perspective as investor, yeah. but coming from the operational perspective as yeah. well. I think that's work-related, non-work-related, soft-skill-related, sounds cliche. I think it's about <laughs> how to get into an inner peace, Oh, sort of. Okay. Yeah. The zen Ism, if there's such see. thing, uh, yeah, there is. Know, I uh, believe, yeah, yeah, the Zenism. Because you know, I think for people who has known me for quite some time, I was known as uh, people with quite a short temper. I'm working oh. on that a lot. Okay, a lot. Yeah, intense and short tempered. So I think my emotion has been like my biggest weakness, at the very least, until today. I'm a blood person, and sometimes this kind of bloodness and impatience and maybe emotional persona I show sometimes can lead to bad things, not in the short run, but maybe in the long run. Right? So mm. I think the root of that is just because I haven't really found the inner peace, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> if there's such thing. So the art of Zenism, like yeah. if there's such thing, right? I mean, the art of Zen, whatever mm. it is, so that you can sort of have a longer patience Mm. Certainly that you accept your faith kind of patience, but more into a strategic patience. And I think it will come with experience as well. Mm. So I think that's the thing that I would like to achieve I see. eventually. Oh. So I'm working on it. Actually, yeah. I'm working on it. So yeah. 
Thank you for sharing more about your inner self. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with Oasis. I mean, unless like our main channel, Care Asia, we talk about business related. But here, I think it's an open space for our speakers, our guests to speak about their personal journey as well. So thank you for sharing your inner self your, with so yes. much honesty. <laughs> Sure. I have uh, one last question for you. Can you give us three recommendations for startups founders out there who might be reading the article or listen to the podcast, especially in a fintech space, on how to kick on 2021 into high gear? So I think tactical-wise, number one, prepare for the worst. Because right now, I think the most important thing is not necessarily growth with all costs which mm-hmm. has been like, uh, you know, the mantra for the, for the last several years. I think business resiliency and sustainability is also something that's very, very important. I think more and more investors and the market also realize that sustainability is also key, right? I because see. of this pandemic. So it's not just about growth, but think about how your business can still be relevant yeah. in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years. Sustainability. Uh, Yeah, you know, think about, I mean, in the words of great Jeff Bezos, think about something that won't change in the next five to 10 years. And that's where your business should go. I so see. I think that's one. The other one is that there's always, I think, learning from last year's experience. I think everyone is being like uh, becoming uh, much, much more paranoid and maybe questioning when is the light at the end of this freaking tunnel. Right. Just as an entrepreneur, uh, as innovators, I believe that there's always opportunities in the times of pandemic. And, you know, some hindrances are built for, are built for bigger opportunities, I yeah. guess. So find opportunities in this pandemic, create your own uh, momentum, sort of. And at the end of the day, I believe that uh, responsible, not necessarily investing, but also responsible company building is also key. Just, you know, letting you guys know we're launching two new funds. Uh, one of them is in Impact, impact okay. Investing. And I think one of the team in Impact Investing is that any companies, any invest, uh, any companies should know uh, what sort of impact that they're going to build to their stakeholders, not just direct stakeholders, but also the externalities of what they are doing. I think in this period of time and also due to the emergence of technologies like Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever, the trends are going into a more responsible company building. So mm-hmm. I believe that if you are going to change the fate of the nation technology ecosystem, think about how your companies can affect not just your direct stakeholders, but also the externalities of the repercussion of the technology or the company that you're building. So I think along those lines. Joshua Augusta, thank you for your time and thank you for tuning in with KR Asia. Thank you.